sort of the rules of the sky were if you if you're a a a fighter pilot and the other plane if their canopy comes off that's a sign that the pilot's going to bail out so you you stop shooting and that's what the uh the the other pilot did he he did allow my uncle to to uh bail out You are listening to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast, and I'm your host, Tatiana Fallon. This podcast is run by the organization Stories Behind the Stars. We have the goal of writing a story for every service American service member killed during World War II. That's over 420,000. We are accomplishing this goal through amazing volunteers who you will hear in this podcast as they research and write these stories. If you're at all interested in becoming a volunteer and researching and writing these stories, please check us out at storiesbehindthestars.org. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope you enjoy this amazing content that we're finding. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Um, Today, I have John with me, John Meyer. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Yes. Um, John, could you take a, a little bit and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and then what brought you to this project? Okay. Well, um, my, my name is John Meyer. I, uh, I am a army veteran. I served in the, uh, army, the army reserves back, back in the eighties, uh, was a combat engineer for a while. And, uh, I recently re re retired from 35 years with the railroad and for a number of years, I've been um, searching for details about my my uncle Ray. He was a 19 year old fighter pilot in World War II. Uh, he was lost on the 28th of June, 1943, while protecting the bombers over Italy. And when he didn't come back, the Air Force at the time simply said, "Failed to return, cause unknown." And I, probably about 20, 25 years ago, I started doing a little research about about him. Uh, one of the things that got me going with that is my grandmother had this beautiful painting of my uncle in her li- living room, um, and I have that uh, now. And started searching a little bit more about, about about my uncle, found a lot of stuff. And by accident, uh, a little over 15 years ago, I actually found a family on the island of Sar- Sar- Sardinia. Um, and this family, their father was 13 years old at the time. And he witnessed the air battle in which my uncle's P-40 was shot down watched him bail out of his burning plane. Uh, tragically, it was too low for his, his, uh, his parachute to fully open, and he died when, when he landed. And about 15 years ago, we actually went out to the island and met the family and stuff. And it was so amazing. We're standing on the street corner. The father's talking. Some of their friends are talking, telling stories, what it was like in war-torn yeah, uh, Italy in 1943, a friend of theirs is translating everything to 
to English for us. And the whole time I'm, I'm looking down the street at this one doorway about a block away. After about 20, 30 minutes of all the storytelling, we go a few blocks over and we go to this open field. And I'm told this is the place where my uncle's plane crashed. So we, we, we visited there. In fact, uh, later I was given shell casing, some, uh, some 50 caliber bullets that were recovered from my uncle's plane. So I actually have parts of his plane after it crashed. But after that, we walked around the corner, went up the street, stopped right in front of the doorway that I kept, uh, that I kept looking at. And they said, this is the spot that my uncle landed and died. And my family used to have this big, long Polish name. And this young 13-year-old boy walks up to my uncle's body, sees the big, long Polish name on his flight suit. And the first thought in his mind was, why is the Polish Air Force down here fighting us? And not, not realizing that in the U.S., for the, for the, mo, mo, the most part, your talents determine what you could do, not where you're from or anything like, like uh, that. Um, so I, because of all the research that I've done about my uncle and in the last several years, both my wife and I have been involved with a veterans group for the, um, the 325th fighter group, also known as the, the, uh, the checker tail clan. That's um, a name that Axel Sally proudly gave to, to that group. And well, actually she called them the checker tail bastards, but after the war, the guys decided to clean it up a little bit. It says, we're not going to have our families coming to a, a re reunion of bastards. We're going to be the clan. So that's how that got going. Um, and I've been he heavily involved with that. Uh, and because my uncle was killed, most of the, re the reunions, um, and right, right, rightly so, the reunions were there to celebrate surviving the war. And because my uncle was killed, I sort of looked at things from a little bit of a different point of view. Uh, if you've been on the, the, uh, the Battle Monument Commission that runs all of our overseas cemeteries, every day they post on Facebook a remembrance of one of the people buried in their cemeteries. A lot of times from World War II, sometimes World War I, sometimes other battles. Um, so I sort of took that several years ago and I started researching all the members of the checker tail that are still overseas. And I started doing something like that on our Facebook page to remember the guys who are still, um, as I would say, uh, that are still deployed overseas, you know, because there's about 60 members of the 325th that are still buried or were never found and are um and are um uh are memorialized overseas um and then a while back i found out about this uh project and it's like wow this is sort of the next step to what i was al already doing and doing a little more re re research uh and i'm very lucky because i have several books by pilots and other people about the the uh, the the checker tales 
Um, so I can go back to these books and get a lot of details. And even if they're not mentioned directly in, in the book, I can find out details about the mission they were flying and different things like that. Where were they flying from? Um, so that's, you know, sort, sort of how, how I got started and, and doing this. And I've sort of given myself the, uh, the, the mission to find and write stories about every member of the three, uh, the 325th that I can find and share it. In fact, uh, the Battle Monument uh, c c Commission, I finally got some, some good email addresses fr from them. So when I visited my uncle's uh, cemetery a couple of times in the past, they said they want to get information about the people that are in their cemeteries. So the story that I'm writing up and all the, all the pictures and all the documents that I get, I'm sharing that with the overseas cemeteries. So they have all, all, all of that. So they, they, so they also can, can share. So is your, your uncle's buried here in the States or is he still overseas? He is still overseas. He's buried at the uh, Sicily Rome Cemetery. It's about a 45 minute train ride south of Rome. Uh, it's real close to the Anzio battlefields um, and beautiful area. Uh, I've had the honor of visiting there twice. Uh, members of the Checker Tales were talking about going to Italy as a group in May of next year. Uh, the town of Lacina, which is on the other side of the country from uh, Rome, uh, when the 325th moved forward to a new er airbase there, and they and at that time they were the most forward airbase in in all of Europe. Um, the townspeople said that the Nazis stopped bombing them because as the Nazis were pulling north, um, they they didn't like anyone that didn't support them. And even if the local farmers really didn't care what was going on, it's like, hey, I got my crops to take care of. I got my cattle or whatever. If they did not directly support them, the Nazi didn't like them. So they would fly over and strafe cattle and, and throw small mines in, into uh, farm fields and stuff. But when the 325th moved up there, and it was a little bit different how the allies did things for the the uh, the the locals when the Nazis came in, they just basically said, "We're taking that field. We don't care. We're not going to give you anything for it. We're just going to take whatever we, we want." When the Allies came in, they went to the landowners and said, "We want we want to pay you to rent your fields for, from you, you know, and we will hire your local people and pay them to help us build this." And, and oh, by the way, when our people come in, the, the more skilled people will help you get the power in, in your town going again and get the water system up and running and get the telephones up and running for you. You know, so that's the huge difference between what the Nazis did and what the uh, the uh, the uh, allies were doing in, you know, 43, 44 and, and 45. You know, but they but since they. Got got a lot off track there. Sorry, but no, no. Actually, that's that's super fascinating. I, I didn't really. I, I don't know very much about how the policies that we had as we reoccupied Europe. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of fascinating to see the differences and to, it kind of makes, as you were telling your story about visiting Italy, I was like, wow, I wonder why they were so nice to, to you. Like, I mean, I'm sure that was decades later. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and your family, like they must've had a good experience with the Americans to be so welcoming and kind to you coming and visiting. And so mm-hmm. it sounds like that's, that's why, because like we came in and we helped them get back to somewhat of a normal life again. Yes. And so, so the town, uh, nine years ago now, they built a monument to the three, uh, the three, uh, 25th, because they feel that they, the, the checker tales saved their, their, uh, town. And they have this beautiful monument. I, I, I have not had a chance to see it yet. Uh, so that's why I'm hoping on getting over there next year for the 10th, the 10th anniversary of the, uh, monument going over there and while we're over in italy i'm definitely wanting to get down to sicily rome to visit my uh, uncle's grave and hopefully see a few other graves from members of the uh the checker tales that are there and i'm hoping on getting up to uh florence also where another big u.s cemetery is and several members of the three 325th are buried there uh, uh, also so that's Plans for the uh, future. (laughs) Yeah. When the world is not so crazy with COVID, hopefully we'll see that soon. But tell us. And no active wars close by. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your uncle. Like what, what was his reason for joining the, um, you know, I guess he was in the army air corps or was he, um, what, what drew him to that rather than like a different type of service? Do you know? I'm not exactly sure why. I know um, my dad's talked very, very little about, about my uncle. My, my uncle Ray was about a year and a half older than, than my dad. The two of them were very, very close. And one of the stories that my, my grandmother told me in 1979 when I drove a my uh, my old motorcycle, a thousand miles from northwest corner of Indiana out towards Cape Cod, because um, my dad was still at home when they got word that that Ray, Ray, Ray was killed. And she said my dad was yelling, cursing, stomping his feet, uh, very upset about that. Um, so he he talked very, very little about uh, about Ray. Other I do have a, a few old photographs of model planes that he built. A lot of them were sti- were basic stick built planes. They didn't have, you know, the, the plastic model kits we have now. And to go from, you know, stick built planes as a hobby to becoming a fighter pilot is a bit of a jump there. Uh, but like, so so many others. Uh, he he turned eighteen just a few days before per, per, Pearl Harbor w- was attacked, and like many others, he he left school. Um, and in early January forty two, he joined the uh, the Air, the Army Air, Air, Air Corps, and I think it was around March is when he qualified for for uh for flight training now a little bit of background on that before world war ii in order to even just be considered for flight training 
you had to have a full four-year college degree. And I believe it was about six months, eight months or so before the war started, they changed that to down to two years of college. After we got in the war, they totally took, took the college thing out, but you had to pass a rigorous two-day testing process where you did hand-eye coordination and knowledge and everything else in addition to your flight physicals you you had to do. So for my Uncle Ray, who was a carpentry student at a tech school, and basically he only went to to high school one year because he went went to school for one year. And the the school system out there, you went to junior high for three years. High school was three years. Uh, so he went to went to school for one year. Then he left school, traveled down to the northern uh, or the the Washington D.C. area, worked as a carpenter, and he was only sixteen when he left home. Went down there, worked as a carpenter for about a year at Fort Belvoir, just outside of Washington D.C., building barracks. So he did that for about a year. In the fall of 41, came back, went back to school for a few months. Pearl Harbor was attacked, left again, joined joined the Army. Um, And soon after that, he uh, once he qualified for flight training, went went to Texas, spent about uh, eight months down in Texas doing a lot of his uh, his flight training down there. Uh, I've had had the honor of visiting a couple of the bases that he did his flight training at. In fact, uh, uh, at, uh, at, excuse me, at Corsicana, Texas, where he first learned how to fly um, several years ago, I was down there and actually got a, got a fly in the same type of airplane that he first learned how to fly. In fact, I have a picture of him just after he landed from his first solo flight. And also to be able to fly in the same t- type of plane, that was Pretty cool. I'm hoping um, there's a museum in in California that has a P-40 Warhawk in checker tail markings. They used to sell rides in that plane. Several years ago, they they uh, stopped. I think after one of these old Warbirds crash, you know, a lot of places stopped giving rides. I'm hoping sometime in the future. They give rides in that plane again. That will literally be one of those, excuse me, one of those priceless moments to fly in the same type of plane that my uncle flew in combat in the markings of the unit that he flew with. That that would be absolutely fabulous. That would be so cool. Yeah. So what what did your dad think about you doing all this research? Is he still uh, living or? Uh, Sadly, my dad passed away about 15 years back. Um, I think he he really didn't say a lot about it. Um, Even if I started talking about his, his, uh, his brother, you could tell he got choked up a bit. Uh, I think he was happy that I was able to find out exactly what had happened, that uh, that he, he, he did his job. You know, his mission that day was to protect the bombers. 
and a couple of different sources that I have, including the uh, the bomber group that they were uh, flying with that day. They even said the Nazis attacked very hard, and it was one and one of the gunners on on a bomber said that was one of the toughest missions that he has ever been on. But all the bombers made it back. You know, and um, and it turned out my uncle got involved with a one-on-one dogfight with an ace Italian pilot that was flying a brand new type of type of plane, um, a um, a a um, a a Makati two hundred five, and we quickly found out this plane was one of the best Axis fighters around and was equal to the best Spitfires and anything else we had. And my uncle was flying an old P-40. Uh, but it sounds like, like I said, the two of them got into a one-on-one dogfight. Do- uh, both planes got shots in at w- one another. It seemed like my uncle realized that he was by himself. So it looked like he tried to break contact and get back with with, with the other fighters. Uh, the uh the, the other pilot said that he got off one last long-range shot, and that's when my uncle's plane start, started burning. And also, and then, you know, one, uh, from what I understand, uh, the sort of the rules of the sky were if, you, if you're a, a, a fighter pilot and the other plane, if their canopy comes off, that's a sign that the pilot's going to bail out, so you you stop shooting, and that's what the uh, the the other pilot did. He he did allow my uncle to to uh, bail out, um, you know. But sat, sadly, he was too uh, low for for the parachute to fu- fully work on that. Wow, I didn't really realize there were rules that you in the sky that you fought by that's yeah interesting. it was the from what i from several different books that i read particularly the war in north africa um if you could call it this the it was the most gentleman's war we had during World War II, particularly when the british eighth army and rommel's uh, army were battled there's several stories that after a major battle, the medics from both sides are out in the battlefield and British medics are finding wounded German soldiers and they're calling over to German medics is, hey, you got one over here. Or if the guy can walk, hey, your, your guys are over there. Go head, head that way back to your, you guys. And one of the things that I understood was Rommel flat out refused to let SS troops into Africa. He forbid them from coming. So you did not have, you know, those type of troops there. So, you know, and, you know, the, you know, different theaters sort of did things a little bit differently, but I believe most of the, U.S. and British versus the Germans, Italians, stuff like that on the southern front over the Med and the uh, western front from uh, England and stuff. That was sort of a gentleman type war. If you went over Russia, 
totally different tactic, totally different roles. If you went out to the uh, uh, the uh, me, the Pacific, again, different rules. You've had several stories out there where U.S. pilots were in their parachutes coming down and the Japanese planes are shooting at the pilots in their parachutes. And also, I said, different, you know, di- different things in di- different areas. That is, that is super fascinating to me, just to, from a human nature standpoint, to just be aware of, like, you know, to just different every single place that the war was fought. It was fought with different rules and different strategies and philosophies and and that's super insightful to just to to be aware of that um you know looking back you just like it was all just one horrible bloody war but and it it was but just to see like it was so different from different cultures way of fighting so then you so you um said that you are trying to write all the stories of the um the fighter group your uncle was in the checkered the check is that right the checker tales checker tales yeah yes so um did they mostly just fight in southern italy or did they move into the northern part of europe when d-day happened or or um well they they started off in the 12th air Air force um about was it they flew they actually took brand new p-40s flew off the carrier ranger in january 1943 uh they were part of the 12th air force until north africa fell and through the battle of sicily uh soon after that uh they switched over from p40s to p47s and they were moved to the uh, the new 15th air force and basically what they did, they had the 12th and the 15th in the Mediterranean. And the 12th basically had medium and light bombers and fighter bombers, with the 15th Air Force had heavy bombers and the fighters to protect them. Uh, sort of like how later out of England, you had the 8th Air Force that had the heavy bombers. Then you had the 9th Air Force that started with the British Eighth Army in Egypt and came. They were moved around to uh, England, I think, mid to late '43, and they had all the medium bombers uh, that were flying out of uh, out of England. Um, so once the southern part of Italy was, was captured, they they moved over to Italy and they stayed in in that area. They they fi- finished off the war. But they flew missions uh, all the way as far north as Berlin. In fact, the, uh, the 325th, the very first shuttle mission to Russia, the 3, 325th flew that. And it was from, it was a 15th Air Force mission from Italy. And they were able to bomb targets a little further north and east than they would normally be able to do, because then once they bombed it, they just turned east, flew a much shorter distance to Russia and landed there. And then they had a few few days to uh, service the planes and stuff. And then they flew back. 
and they did another bombing mission and then flew back down to uh, to uh, to Italy. And the Eighth Air Force, some of their shuttle missions, they flew out, bombed the targets, went to Russia. Then on the way back, they flew out, bombed targets, came down to Italy to refuel, rearm, and then they flew from Italy back to England and did another bombing raid there. Yeah. In fact, I was just reading a thing um, when I think it was, I think it was this date in 1945 when, uh, Several airborne units were launched across the Rhine River into Germany. And there's one post I saw was making a big deal about how, you know, the bomb, you know, the 8th Air Force and the 9th Air Force did, did everything. Well, the 325th and the 15th Air Force, they had a major raid on Berlin that day. So, you know, they were doing that to try to keep the fighters and stuff away from the air airborne units going in over the, the uh, Rhine. So a lot of times you had um, different units, even though they're thousands of miles apart, they would coordinate things to try to do do stuff to help what what to help out one another there. Yeah, so it's like that a pestering, you know, a bee bugging you so that you don't see the wolf attacking you, you know, <laughs> it's yes. like something's distracting you so you don't see what's coming in from behind. So that's really cool to know that, you know, we, we could work with all our allies and all just, just try to broaden our forces and, and be successful at doing fighting the war that way. So do you have any other stories from um, his unit to share with us? Of yes. Those fallen? Yes. Um, one of them is a gentleman by the name of Bart Judge. Uh, and I came across his name. Uh, I was rereading uh, Her- Herky Green's book or part of his book because I always, I'm always going back to, to these books to get, get some more details. And Herky Green turned out to be one of the top aces in all of Europe. And Bart was actually killed stateside as the 325th was, was being worked up and stuff. And, and I thought, well, shoot, I'm concentrating on people that were killed overseas, but here's a person, a member of the three, 325th, and he was killed state, stateside. Um, but he was born in, in Pennsylvania in 1918, and he was the third, third child in, in that family, joined his uh, sister, Mildred, who was 14 at the time, and Margaret, that was two. Um, his dad was a manager, a distribution company. Um, that was in during for the 1920 census, and they were in Lackawanna, Pennsylvania. Um, and unfortunately, Bart's parents divorced sometime before the 1940 census. So when um, when I was able to find his draft card dated uh, October 1940, and he was living with his mom, and he joined the Army Air Corps in September of 1941, uh, qualified for flight training. He was in flight class uh, 42D, D as in uh, Delta. 
and him and Herky Green went through all through flight training together, and he came out of um, uh, flight training at Foster Field in um, in in Victoria, Texas, which is the same base that my uncle graduated from about six months later, and got his wings in April, um, and. A few months later, uh, both of them were sent to the Boston air area where the uh, the three, 325th was first be being formed. And they were part of the, um, the Boston Air Defense Wing at that time. And they spent about three months getting everyone together, getting everyone trained. The pilots were flying missions. They were doing some uh, some uh, some anti-sub uh, uh uh, uh, patrols. Um, they also, uh, I think it was four pilots every day was at a airport in Boston. So if radar picked up some planes that they didn't know what they were, usually they were air, air, uh, airliners flying in and the pilots just forgot to check in. Well, they would get scrambled, have to go out and, you know, check out the plane, make sure that what it was. And then the pilot's like, oh, we got a fighter off our wing. Then they hurry up and call in and say, hey, this is flight so-and-so. Um, but Bart was killed on December 22nd, 1942, during a routine training flight over Cape Cod and was not able to find out why his plane crashed uh, unfortunately it was he and his plane was not found for several days if there is winter weather a lot of time that area cloudy drip dri dri drizzly different things like that so it was hard hard to find um but he was one of the first checker tails that was killed in the line line of line of duty uh in fact uh, herky mentioned in his book uh, they had a Navy airship help with the search, and he actually was able to go on the air, air, airship and fly around with them. And he, he made a comment. I, I forget the exact wording, but he said, uh, all these Navy guys got, got it good. Uh, soon after the air, airship launched, the chef on, on the airship said, you know, how do you want your steak? <laughs> And also they have they have lunch while they're uh, uh, searching for him. And, uh, and Bart, uh, after everything happened, the, the family had his body taken back to Pe Pennsylvania, where, where he's uh, buried there. It's surprising how many um, airplane accidents there were on American soil during World War II. Like, I think if people had the real numbers, they would be totally shocked to to hear. You know, it was not every time you you got in that plane, you took your life. I mean, mm -hmm. put your life on the line. It was, yeah, because you had new pilots, new air crews, new maintenance people. A lot of times. You know, it was like, oh, the, the newest and greatest planes were going overseas to war. So we had these these old, tired, worn out planes back here for for us, uh, uh, for uh, uh, for training and stuff, you know. And, you know, so some some di different things ha happened there. In fact, um, 
in the three months that the three, 325th was working up, uh, they had five fatal plane crashes. And I think about 20 or 25 total uh, things happened with planes that were severe enough that a accident report had to be made. You know, and Bart was one of those five that were killed stateside. So um, here, Uncle, he would have. So I just Bart seems a lot older than your uncle, right? I mean, what, yes. So yeah. was he I, then had a college degree, or had they already lowered that standard, and he was just an older? Uh, Bart had had a. I believe he had four four years of college. Let me just double check here. Yeah, he had a, a full four-year four, four degree. Wow. Wow. Just always wonder, like, what, what made them join? You know, if, if you're a college graduate, you know, you got the world ahead of you. Like, what made them want to, you know, take the riskiest job there was in the war, I feel like, you know, was flying airplanes at that time. I mean, hmm. maybe there were more risky ones, but I just, it's always just a curiosity of mine. Obviously, we probably never know, but. 